You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm the Dean from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Ben from DreamLod Studio. I feel like we need to give a disclaimer again, Vadim, where uh, we we actually recorded two episodes on the same day. We're not filthy, disgusting men that are just wearing the same clothes from week to week. I did. I The other day I was scrolling through our, our YouTube <laughs> channel looking to make sure like we weren't always wearing the same outfits. I was like, I hate myself for doing this. Why do I care about this? But yeah, it's only <laughs> weeks that uh, we record two episodes in one day that that seems to be happening. So yes, I mean, I, I don't own that. I only own like 10 t-shirts. I heard a comedian talk about how everybody like style doesn't mean anything anymore after the pandemic because everybody basically is wearing pajama pants. <laughs> my wife and i we, we went out last night which we like we never do but there was this, this restaurant in philly uh with lebanese food which Ooh, i really like lebanese food and is great they had a little courtyard so you could sit outside which you know we were we were good doing that we're both vaccinated and the we went with her sister and her sister's fiance anyway we went out and i was like trying to pick like a, a it was really hot and i was like i don't know like a like a collared shirt it's like a restaurant Am I overdressed on like, I honestly, I couldn't remember what it was like, like what the expectations yeah. were but when we got there. You're totally right. It was like people were just wearing what they would wear to like a <laughs> pool party in this like really nice restaurant. I was like, all right, I guess this is the new, the new the, world. Funny, funny, funny. Well, I guess we could just jump right on into things today. We're going to be talking about music theory and how we can apply it to a studio recording environment. I feel like we don't really, at least when I skim YouTube or I are, I um, read through the email chains of other producers that I follow. This topic does not come up that often in the studio. And I think that's because uh, studio engineering seems to be a lot more of a, I don't know, like a hands-on technical, figure it out, get it done elbow grease type of field and we're we're less concerned about the actual composition of the material uh as much as we're concerned about capturing what an artist has already done or, or been inspired mm. to do but i i do think that there is a big role for understanding music theory um at least to a certain extent and the important thing to know about music theory is that it's just another tool to help you in your music journey to accomplish creating great music. And you can feel free to know as much or as little that you want to know about it. But the important should be is it should just be another tool in your arsenal to help you make better music. I do think it's it's actually becoming more and more important as time goes on. I, I was reading an interview with uh, Andrew Sheps, and he was talking about you know making records back in like the nineties and all of this work was done up front, you know, all the production arranging mm -hmm. when you were mixing, it was literally like the tones were there. Every, the arrangement was there. Everything was there. You were just like moving stuff around and making it fit more and more though, as we're in these DIY recording situations, we are having to 
produce while we're mixing. Like right. we are already mixing, but now we're going to add stuff. We're going to add a synth here. What chords is the synth going to play? This is becoming the reality. So I think the way I th- he was he was mentioning it and the way I kind of understood it was that it used to be a very front end heavy process where you did all of that work up front and then mixing was like a small piece. Now we're doing less upfront and like mixing has become more inclusive of production and so on. So I think yeah. this is like a very relevant topic for people trying to produce music and it's, it's getting only more relevant. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, let's jump into some definitions though. First, uh, let's define specifically what music theory is. So I found an interesting definition uh, on Britannica.com and it says, I like this definition. It's interesting, but it kind of, expands music theory into some things I hadn't thought of before, but Mm -hmm. it says that music theory is the study of the concepts and compositional methods involved in the creation of music. Music theory examines musical qualities such as timbre, tone, pitch, and texture, as well as compositional elements such as rhythm, dynamics, tempo, and much more. Mm. So I think it's interesting to... Uh, to think about music theory encompassing things more subjective like timber tone and texture that's interesting to me but traditionally i would think music theory is more uh the the foundational like infrastructure of what what is happening uh what what is the uh the rules or the the guidelines that is defining what a what an actual song is. It's kind of like the highway you drive your car on. It's not really huh. it's not really a road unless that there's some infrastructure there to to drive on. So that's oh, more the way I think of that's more I, the way I think of music. Here's, theory. here's what I'm going to throw out here. I think the Do term it. theory is is ludicrous for this for for this concept. Yeah, go because for it. Theory is like like the theory of relativity, right? It was a theory and then they found gravitational waves and the theory was kind of like, it's a good, it was proven, right? It's like, I have a theory. Yeah. It's like a hypothesis to me. Music theory is like, it's more like if, if music is a language theory is like grammar, right? Like mm-hmm. you, it, it, it defines some things we've agreed are correct or uh, incorrect, but we can do like poetry does all the time. I just read a book by a poet named Lawrence Ferlinghetti that had no punctuation in it. It's a 300 page sentence and like nobody, you know, he didn't go to jail (laughs) for writing that book. Right. So you can do that. You can like break the rules, but I I think of it as like more like grammar. The word theory is kind of weird. I don't know. Am I off base here? What's no, I think it makes sense. I think for no reason, throwing shade. I think it's semantics, though, on just what the word theory actually means, because I yeah, think I, in the I same way. <laughs> no, no, that's totally fine. You know, full disclosure, I don't really know too much about the reasons why people kind of decided on why Western music is the way that it is today. I just know that there's a lot, a lot of history going back to the Renaissance and probably before uh, as far as these decisions being made and, and even with the decisions being made, things have changed a lot, uh, over the years. We won't cover that in this episode. Maybe that'll be for a future one talking about, you know, how has Western music changed, um, 
you know, from what it was back when Beethoven was writing all, all of his sonatas up until now, what we consider what Western music is. Sonatas to Sinatra, we can call it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so that, that would be more of a music history, but probably not as relevant to helping you create music. So we'll skip that for today. Just to talk about my background a little bit, uh, my music theory uh, background was heavily influenced by my mom who was a piano teacher and she forced me to learn piano when I was five, Shout out, <laughs> which I'm very, yes, which I'm very thankful for. So all of that stuff was kind of taught to me as a kid, which made it easier for me to pick up as repick up as an adult when I started playing more rock music things and less classical music things. Um, but I will say that I never really under, I never really quite understood what I was learning as a kid. It was more like memorization. And it wasn't until later when I started playing guitar that a lot of the concepts finally clicked. And I think it very much was, I'll say it's like akin to learning a second language mm. where if you only know English, then you might not understand, you know, why why the English language works the way it does. We just know that we talk this way. But when you learn a foreign language, you understand, oh, even though this is a foreign language, there are all these similar concepts and ways that grammar is structured that's either similar to your uh, primary language or it's different in key ways. And then you can start to see like, what are the fundamental building blocks underneath communication? And I think the mm. same thing is true of learning a second instrument. It helped give me a different perspective on Oh, this is a different wow. way of interacting with music theory. So that that really helped me in my music journey. I would say that there are three main elements of music theory that can be applied to every song. And those elements are the tempo, the meter, and the key signature. I was also tempted to throw in there a fourth, which I would call feel, uh, which is related to meter, but we can maybe talk about that a little bit later. Uh, I decided to keep it at three, though, for simplicity's sake. <laughs> so um, I really tried to rack my brain and come up with a great analogy because, Vadim, you always come up with awesome analogies. So uh, let's talk about each of these three main elements of a song. Uh, and imagine that's akin to playing hopscotch. Did you ever play hops hopscotch as a kid? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So... You can tell me if this analogy is way off or not, but bear with me here. So in this analogy, let's pretend we're playing hopscotch. Okay. Tempo is the speed at which we'll be hopping. So a okay. slow tempo means we're going to hop really slow to that tempo. A, a faster tempo means we're going to hop fast. The meter is the rhythm that we'll be doing the hopping to. Now, that probably doesn't make sense in... in uh, um a hopscotch scenario uh because i don't think you would hopscotch to like a song or anything like that but you could imagine in particular just hopping to a steady beat or you could do something that's more like now that Wait, could be that's just tempo though isn't it you could say that it's tempo but it it's it's more of a um I guess it's the rhythm and the feeling of how you would be hopping. Hopping. So is that yeah, I'm in thinking of like meter triplets. is like how how often 
how many hops do you do before you hop with two feet instead of one, right? That could be like the meter in a way. How many hops do you do with two feet instead of one? Like when does the pattern repeat, right? You're hopping, there's some pattern. If you had like a yeah. long hopscotch. Yeah. Is that, are you thinking yeah. of hopscotch? Is this the right hopscotch where you hop yeah, on I one foot thinking, and then yeah, up two I, feet? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I know. I, I, I made that more akin to key signature, but so we could say that, uh, um, meter is just, so we have a steady tempo going. That's yeah. the, that's the speed at which we'll be going, but we could also okay. go on the beach or we could do triplets to this beat. So we could, okay. we could subdivide that tempo beat into fours or threes or or something else. Okay. So that's the meter. Gotcha. The, my analogy is falling apart before our eyes, but that's okay. <laughs> I threw a threw a monkey wrench into the, your into your. Which you're always good for going. as a good as a good engineer. You saw the you <laughs> saw the flaw in my design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, finishing up here, key signature. Uh, I make this akin to. So in hopscotch, you would hop along to where the numbers lead you. So you maybe have like two squares of one, two, and then two together that say three, four. And that's basically the way that you have to hop through. You follow the numbers. So mm -hmm. let's instead let's instead imagine that those numbers aren't. Uh, you don't have to touch every square, but a key signature tells you which of those numbers you're allowed to touch from let's say ah. numbers one through 13. And so we'll get into that a, a different, a little bit later, but this key signature is going to tell you which numbers to skip over and which ones adjacent you can hop on. Gotcha. And so tempo, I think that's the easiest concept to grasp. It's basically just the consistent speed at which a recording is supposed to be captured at. So in a DAW, you would set your tempo or metronome to a certain steady beats and then i guess the goal is to record along with that and the degree to which that performance is on or off with the tempo we can categorize that as the humanization or the feel and that's something that's very apparent when you're recording a human and also something that we try to replicate when we're programming something using virtual instruments you're tracking with me so far we got tempo down yep Okay, meter. Let's talk about the second idea. So meter, it can be thought of as the the grid for the rhythm. It's not the rhythm, but it's the grid uh, that your rhythm is going to interact with the music of your song. So if you're looking at sheet music or in your DAW, it's that little thing that's shown as a fraction at the beginning of the song or the beginning of a meter change. So you'll most commonly see a four slash four. Looks like a fraction, four fourths. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, some other common ones you might see are three, four, six, eight, or 12, eight. I think those are the most common ones. You can have other ones too. If you're, in, if you're into Prague, you've seen five, four a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The top number is the number of beats in every measure. Okay. And the bottom number, which I do think of as a fraction, that tells you what type of note gets the beat. So in 4-4 four, four time, the top number is 4, so that means that we have a da, 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 
four beats in every measure of subdivided music. And the bottom number, which you can think of as a one, ignore the top number. Uh, just imagine that it's a fraction that we've, that we've split out. So it's one over four. A quarter mm -hmm. note gets one beat. And a quarter note, I don't know if you've ever seen the symbol, but it's that filled in circle with a line through it. That's a quarter note. Right. You wouldn't really ever see this in music. I guess you could theoretically, but a four over eight, it's still four beats in a measure, but that means an eighth note gets a beat. Mm. Why don't you see that? Is it because four eight is effectively four four, but just at a at half the tempo that you've chosen for four eight? Like an eighth note and a quarter note also could could be the same thing if you double or half exactly oh right so yeah the easiest way to identify the beat or at least what i like to do is listen for the percussion that's happening in a song mm. in particular the drums can be a, a real clear indicator of this so you can think of four four time the meter of four four as being the most basic and simple drum beat where we're alternating quarter notes between the kick drum and the snare kick snare kick snare one two three four well, that's what um, that would be like if it was like kick, snare, kick, snare, we could say that's four, four. If you had like kick, kick, snare, kick, 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 snare, kick, that would be like eight, eight, right? Potentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's okay. a good way of thinking about it. Uh, so let's talk about some other examples of meters. We've got three, four. So a three over four. That means that there's three beats in every measure and the quarter note still gets a beat. So you could think of that as one, two, three, one, two, three, kick, snare, snare, kick, snare, snare. That's like a waltz. <laughs> right. Just imagine dancing in any like, I don't know, like um Pride and Prejudice movie. <laughs> they're they're dancing, they're dancing to waltzes. Uh related to that, but different feel is six, eight time. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. So it kind of implies that in some of these meters, um, they imply a type of accents going on each beat so three four time for like a waltz even the way that i described it with the drums you get this kick snare snare kick snare snare so there's like a double accent on beat two and three whereas with six eight uh it's more of this kind of swinging back and forth where the accents are on beat one and four one mm. two three four five six one two three so you can start thinking that starts giving you a clue as to how these beats are a little bit different. Uh, they're, they're not quite as simple as just uh, like three, four is not just a reduced fraction of six, eight time. It actually has a different feeling associated uh, with it. Intuitively, because we're familiar with some of these, you know, standard feels, we, we can think of it as kick, snare, snare, kick, snare, snare, but this is where I'm wondering how much flexibility you have as a songwriter to certainly in like, you know, prog genres, but really anything. What what if you change that up? I mean, you could you could take a six eight and choose different accents. Yeah, you could. And, and then try to write a song using that. And it, you could come up with something interesting. Sometimes that's maybe like a nice exercise to try i 100 percent agree with you because this this is intuitive to people that listen to music it's just interesting to break it down into its fundamental parts and understand like what's kind of happening underneath the hood yeah i mean it's we've talked about this like uh 
you know, in, in psychology, they say, name it to tame it. And I've talked about the haircut before where like having a name for a type of thing just helps you recognize it. You can write multiple different types of meters in different ways. And I kind of have, (laughs) I have my own beefs with my bandmates in the fell because they write really crazy prog music. And sometimes (laughs) when I import their, their song, um, mappings, I'll see crazy ridiculous random stuff like 17 8 time and (laughs) to me 17 8 doesn't make any sense because i'm not going to count on my fingers 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13 like you're not going to count up to 17 to get a rhythm right instead that beat is probably or that meter is probably uh let me see if i can do my math right it's probably right exactly it's probably a measure of eight or eight, eight, and then followed up by a measure of nine, eight. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I would probably write it instead of putting it as a 17 or something weird like that. And very similar, similarly, um, you can write a song in seven, four time, or you could also alternatively write it as two measures of three, four and four, four repeating. So it's just another way to think about it. And typically what you would choose is, what actually feels more natural for the song like is it a drum beat that and i always go back to the drums when i'm thinking about meter is it a drum beat that is linear and doesn't repeat at all through seven beats then it's probably a seven four song or is it a drum beat that the first half of it is or the first three beats of it is a specific thing and then there's an extra beat added for the second measure then it's mm. probably three, four, and four, four. That's the way I would think about that. One fun thing for me that I can do is I can write a really boring riff in four, four time. And all we have to do is change up the meter to make it more interesting, but keep the riff the same. And so, in that sense, you'll have the riff falling at different parts of the beat as your meter keeps going along, if that, if that makes sense. So, the start of your riff will change um, what beat it's falling on. So that's a, that's a cool technique that you can do with yeah, that's meter like a changes. Polyrhythm almost, right? Like you have mm-hmm. a song in 4-4 four, four, and then you have a riff in 5-4 and it's going to repeat every five measures, right? Or something yeah. like that. So it's like that's where you get like common denominators. But I, that that is an awesome songwriting tool to challenge yourself with too is you come up with a boring thing in 4-4 four, because four, that's so intuitive. And then try to make it five four, and just try to write a song in five four, and you'll you'll end up with something kind of unique. Yes, absolutely. You you could have an odd meter that is just like you said, it's just fixed for the whole song. Like a a good example of like a song that was huge that you may not realize as odd meter was Soundgarden's "Fell on Black Days," is in uh, seven yeah. eight. And that I always thought was interesting because, you know, we're most songs on the radio are four, four and taking a song that's seven, eight and making it still a popular song is like no small feat. Um, so, but that song is just seven, eight throughout. It's just, I think it's just seven, eight the whole way, pretty much. I think you're right about that. What helps ground it in reality is that the drums play that very consistent drum beat, which is like a four, four time beat. And so you'll have the snare 
and the kick they'll alternate the downbeat where they fall throughout yeah. the meter yeah it's still like uh yeah the snare is still on the three and you st- it's still you can still kind of groove to it um but it's got this kind of reset feeling but this is the other thing cool thing about like theory i think is but the first measure of that song, you're like, oh, that's a little interesting. But by uh-huh. the end of it, you don't you don't even hear it anymore because you've kind of recal your brain has been recalibrated now for seven, yes. eight. And so it starts to feel very natural in, in a way. As long as you give a grounding, I mean, like Meshuga is the most famous example of this, where on the one hand, there's very difficult rhythms to count out. But on the other hand, if you ever watch the drummer Thomas Hake. Yes, he's got he's got the hi hat going and he's got the snare and it still feels very intuitive. Mm-hmm. And still kind of like groove to it, and that um, is another cool idea. It's sort of like a polyrhythm going on there, where there's there's still something that feels like four, and you can also do that with with vocals, which is I think another thing Soundgarden did a lot. In fact, Super Unknown is is that album that that song is on. I don't think there's any four four songs on that entire album. Is maybe my not actually without question my favorite album of all time and oh really another way that yeah absolutely another that's my desert island album another way that they make that accessible is through the vocal melodies the vocal melodies still feel kind of very structured and familiar even though some of the underlying stuff is a bit more uh interesting so yeah there's a lot of things you can a couple of things you can play around with there as long as you give the listener a ground a grounding or something they can hang on to and anticipate because we like to anticipate things as listeners yes. uh you know you'll, you'll you can you can really do some far out stuff i didn't think we'd have such a riveting discussion about meter but that was that was <laughs> fun <laughs> all right so let's talk about maybe we can wrap this guy up here after we talk about the last aspect of our um our triad of basics of music theory in a song uh and this would be key signature so in western music we have collectively agreed that we're going to split an octave and an octave is every doubling of frequency so we've determined that in modern western music four 440 hertz is an a so if we double that frequency to 880 that is an octave up of an a and the same difference if we divide that 440 by 2 220 is also an octave lower a but we've decided in Western music that we're going to divide each of these octaves into 12 even steps with the 13th step being the, the next octave up above. So there's 12 steps that we have to go uh, between 440A up to 880 to get to the next octave. So we can talk about this in the context of playing guitar. I'm sure we have a lot of guitar players that listen to this podcast. So. If we take a look at our guitar, it's in our hands. Playing each of these notes would be like fretting each fret, starting with the first fret on our E string and playing a note as we fret, each fret going up to the 12th fret. That's like playing each of those uh, each of those steps. And so it starts to make sense. Oh, we have 12 frets, it's an octave. It's all the subdivisions of Western music. Right. That's what we call the chromatic scale. Um, on piano, this would look like starting on any note and just playing each subsequent key, going up in pitch until we count 12 keys. And we see including that repeating. The black keys. Including right. the black keys, yes. Yeah. 
So a more useful scale, we can use the chromatic in some situations, but a more useful scale is the major scale, which is seven select steps out of the 12 per octave. Um, and a major scale always follows this pattern. We can start on any note and say we start on C. That's the easiest one. No weird sharps or flats. But it always follows the pattern of we always step up by, oh, I need to explain what whole and half steps are. So a whole step is you, a whole step is skipping uh, a fret in, you know, guitar world. We're taking two steps at once instead of just the next uh, nearby note, which is called a half step. So a major scale follows the pattern of whole step, whole step, half step, whole step, whole step, whole step, half step. So if we think about that, uh, for starting on C, we jump from C up to D. So we're skipping C sharp, C to D. And we skip D sharp and go to E. That's the next whole step. E doesn't have a sharp in theory. The next note is an F, so it's a half step. Then we do another whole step up to G, then another whole step to A, then a third whole step to B, and then that last half step completes the octave. So that's what we call a major scale. Um, the other most common scale is the minor scale, and that follows the pattern of whole step, half step, whole step, whole step, half step, whole step, whole step. Each major scale has a relative minor associated with it. And right. So another, all of this, another way to say it is like both of these scales will have the same notes, C major and A minor. If you wrote out yes. the notes, they would be the same notes. And so there, that's what you're saying. There's a relative minor. But it, I know you talked about this on our production episode where you can do some interesting uh, switching there of perspective because you know we think of majors having a type of emotion or sound, minors having a type of emotion or sound. And here yet you have one major scale and one minor scale that actually have the same notes in them. Yes, but it just changes the, the flavor of the music or the feeling in it by hearing those intervals next to each other versus the happier intervals of and yeah that's an, another interesting topic maybe we could talk about a different time like why do we associate those steps with feeling happier and lighter versus those different steps as being darker and um sadder sounding i don't know it's interesting I don't know. but nobody knows uh, but that is how i used to memorize the modes is, ah, is okay. by is through um through like movie scenes. I remember I would think like, oh, like Lydian mode. I'm jumping ahead here. It's probably for the next episode, yes. but I feel like that one sounds like it's Bucky the dog. He's flying. Like, yeah, you know, that's what, and I would associate each one of these scales with like a feeling or a movie scene. And that's how I would remember them back when I was trying to memorize all this stuff. This is where we'll introduce the, the circle of fifths. You might have heard of this before. This is where we insert infographic circle of fifths. But I'll try to describe this and not complicate things even more. But really, these scales are all just kind of, it's very simple. It's really just a geometric interpretation of the relationship of these 12 different notes on the scale and how, um, how each of these keys relate to one another. So when you play a major scale 
on a bass, it has the same pattern no matter where you play it on the neck. If I want to play a C scale or C major scale, all I need to know is where a C note is, and then I can play that same pattern and it will right. always be a C major scale. And the same thing is true of any other scale. If I wanted to play an A major scale, it's that same pattern, which is also the key as to why the circle of fifths works the way that it does. And it is also the reason why certain keys always have the same sharps in them. It's because the pattern always has to stay the same. So therefore the notes and the sharps have to go, uh, have to correspond with that pattern. To make sense out of all of this, uh, the circle of fifths is basically, if we take the fifth degree of the scale, so that would mean if we're starting on a C, the second degree is D, third is E, fourth is F, and the fifth is G. So if we go to the fifth degree of the scale and then play a major scale starting on that fifth degree, that will be the next sharp in our circle of fifths which is counting each key with increasing sharps on it. So that huh. also means that a G scale has one sharp and it's an F sharp. Mm. So if we go a fifth away, uh, if we go to the next um, station on our circle of fifths, which is clockwise if you're looking at the diagram, I wish I had one here in front of us, but go look it up online. I know I know what I'm saying is true. <laughs> so if we go up to the fifth degree of the scale on a G scale, that would be, you know, let's count it out, G, A, B, C, D, and play a D major scale, we're going to have two sharps in that scale, and they're always going to be an F sharp, which is what the first sharp that we added when we did the G scale and it's all also going to have a C sharp. Hmm. So this keeps going until we get up to, I think, seven sharps. Uh, one funny acronym that I learned for uh, the way that the, the sharps get added is Fat Charlie Go Down and Eat Breakfast. That's all seven yeah. sharps. So if you, if you take the first letter of that acronym, yeah. then you'll have the order of the sharps. Uh, an easy way to figure out a key. So if you ever see a key signature, if you're mm. looking at sheet music and it says, uh, I have five sharps, what key am I in? Mm. You can use that acronym, Fat Charlie Go Down and. So the last sharp is an A sharp. Uh, a quick way to figure out what key you're in is just to go a half step, half step up from that last sharp. You're in the key of B. The key of B has five uh, sharps. How about that? Yep. So that's an easy little trick. Most I only of the time. care about and the most... fifth interval because that's exactly. The power yes, exactly. <laughs> and I do want to get into that next episode. Why you know these? We could talk about chord structure and like why the fifth sounds so good, and you know so, what intervals you want to avoid and which ones kind of tend to work all the time. Here's the way I, I kind of think about theory, because I, I did I did spend some I, I clearly don't know it nearly as well as you know it, but I, I did spend some years when I was learning guitar in high school, learning some of this stuff. And the way I treat it now as is some as like a reference book, like a reference textbook, if you can imagine. Yeah. So 
I pull it out every now and then if I'm like struggling to figure out what notes to play. I'm like, all right, I have to figure I have to reverse engineer and figure out what key this is in. But other than that, I try to never ever think about it because I agree with I'm, that. Don't know it that well. And um I just try to keep trying different notes until I find one <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> you know, I think as is very apparent from me trying to explain this, like it didn't roll off my tongue. And I think that, you know, I learned this stuff when I was five, but I think that also shows you that I don't think about it too much. Like it's mm. not something that you have to think about on a daily basis to make music. It just is like you said, it's it's helpful as a foundation of understanding like what is actually happening so that we can like analytically specifically say this is what this interval is this is this is you know what it's doing and maybe we can apply that to other things in music creation if we hit a if we hit a roadblock or we need to like stimulate our creativity in some ways that's how i like to use it as well yeah i know this is probably more of like a very basic episode and not a very exciting one but at least gives a foundation of to talk about some more interesting things like pentatonic scales uh, which is like the foundation of like pretty much all rock music and chord structure, chord intervals, maybe even chord progressions. Because um, that stuff to me is the real interesting thing about music theory. Yeah. We got to start with the basics before we get there. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks for the overview. And uh, I actually didn't know that that um, Circle of Fifths acronym, Fat Charlie Go Down and Eat Breakfast. So yeah, that's a fun one. That one will stick with me. <laughs> awesome the price man the right there <laughs> right there and until next time we're the diy recording guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself if you're enjoying the podcast take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.